This episode, we are going to be talking about a powerful and impactful woman who, during the 1960s, was referred to as the fastest woman in history. She was one of the most visible black women in America, became a role model for black and female athletes around the world, and was an incredible civil rights and women's rights pioneer. But what makes her story even more inspiring and unbelievable is the fact that she was born prematurely and told she would never even be able to walk. Let's get into the levels of Wilma Rudolph's story. Wilma Rudolph was born prematurely at just 4.5 pounds to Blanche Rudolph on June 23, 1940 in St. Bethlehem, Tennessee. She was the 20th of 22 kids, I'll repeat that, the 20th of 22 kids from her father, Ed Rudolph's two marriages. Don't worry, there wasn't one woman cranking out 22 kids, but still, 22 kids between two women is, is kind of ridiculous. Right after she was born, her family moved to Clarksville, Tennessee, where they would stay until Rudolph made it all the way through high school. Her mom was a maid, and her dad was a railway porter and did odd jobs here and there around Clarksville, up until he passed away when Rudolph was 22 years old. Now, we already know how this story ends, because I've already mentioned Rudolph would go on to accomplish some incredible things that would we'll get into later. But when I start to share more about the health issues, the diseases, illnesses that she was born with or contracted at an early age and had to endure, it makes her story even more remarkable. Remember, this was at a time when medical treatment, good medical treatment, I should say, wasn't readily available for African-American families in Clarksville during the 1940s. So her parents had to go out of their way to seek treatment for her all before the age of six, right? Keep that in mind. She contracted pneumonia, scarlet fever, and infantile paralysis, which was caused by the the polio virus. Obviously, she does recover from these, but the polio virus caused her to lose strength in her left leg and foot, which would force her to wear a leg brace up until she was 12 years old. Now, remember that age, 12 years old, because that's going to be important. So I want to break down the years from when she was six up until... Uh, she would be able to walk without the leg brace at 12 years old, right? So the first two years, six to eight years old, her and her mom would make weekly trips to Nashville for treatment, again, because good medical treatment wasn't readily available to them. So they had to make this roughly 50-mile trip to see a doctor all the way in Nashville who would help. From ages eight to 10, she had to wear an orthopedic shoe for support and had to receive about four massages a day from members of her family, which I guess is the benefit of having 21 other siblings. Someone's always going to be available to give you a leg massage. And it was because of the treatments that she received and the consistent massages that she was able to finally overcome the debilitating effects of polio and start to walk without the help of a leg brace or an orthopedic shoe by the time she turned 12. Again, this is a girl that was told at birth that she probably wouldn't ever be able to walk, and now at 12 years old, she's walking on her own. And from what you can imagine, the story just gets even more remarkable. 
Now, remember, these years that she's dealing with all of these illnesses, other kids, right, are going to school, they're making friends, having a great time. But Rudolph had to be homeschooled until she could manage on her own. So she missed kindergarten, missed first grade, but was able to finally attend classes in 1947 when she was seven years old. So she started out in second grade at Cobb Elementary School, still having to take her weekly trips to the doctor in Nashville with her mom, though. Remember that. So you can imagine how there's this this new girl in school who had been homeschooled for the past two years, didn't have that many friends or any friends at all, and who has this giant leg brace on at all times that she's required to wear. It must have been pretty pretty rough go of it early on at school, which actually you know draws a lot of comparisons if you've been listening to this podcast earlier episodes about Tamika Catching's story where she was made fun of at a young age for having to wear hearing aids. So fast forward a little bit, Rudolph decides to follow in her sister Yvonne's footsteps and she starts playing basketball in eighth grade, okay? And she gets so good at it that by her sophomore year of high school, she's now at, at Burt High School, which is in, still in Clarksville. Her sophomore year of high school, she's on varsity and she puts up 803 points that season, which sets a record for high school girls basketball at the time. Now, the reason I bring up her basketball career, other than the fact that this is a girl who couldn't walk on her own until the age of 12, is now breaking records in basketball, is because this guy, Ed Temple, who's the Tennessee State track and field coach, first saw her during a basketball game, and he knew that she was a natural athlete. And so he's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta, you know, get to know this girl. She's, she's gotta come uh, run track and field for me. And this is why they start, they start to build this relationship. And Temple ends up helping her train for track and field and, and providing her with all these opportunities to eventually evolve into this standout sprinter that she would become. So remember, 12 years old, she gets the, the leg brace off. Now at 14 years old, Rudolph is invited by Temple to join the summer training program at Tennessee State. And just after the program, she competes at this amateur athletic union or AAU uh, track meet in Philadelphia. And she wins all nine events that she entered into. Temple then would continue to train her for many years to come until she was old enough to enroll as a student at Tennessee State University in 1958. But I'm skipping ahead too far. As if this story couldn't get even more insane, right? Remember, she's finally able to walk on her own at the age of 12, starts playing basketball at 14, at 16 years old, 16, so four years after she even could walk on her own, at 16 years old, she attends this U.S. Olympic track and field team trial in Seattle, Washington. And this is uh, 1956. And she qualifies to compete in the 200-meter individual event at the 1956 Summer Olympics in Melbourne, Australia. She was the youngest member of the U.S. Olympic team, obviously, (laughs) and one of five other athletes that were also being trained by Ed Temple, which... Just for reference, they refer to themselves um, as the nickname, with the nickname, the Tiger Bells. Now, although she was defeated in the the preliminary heat of the 200-meter race at the Olympics, she also ran the 4x100 relay as the, the third leg of that race with the her Tiger Bell teammates. And they ended up tying the world record of 4.9 seconds 
and ended up getting the bronze medal because the British team that came in second and the Australian team that came in first obviously ran better. The Australian team finished with a time of 44.5 seconds. So they beat him by about 0.4 seconds. So she brings this Olympic bronze medal back with her now to in her junior year to her classmates, right? And she starts showing it off to her classmates. And when she does this, she's like, you know what? I think I can do better. You know, she's loving all the, the, the clout that she's getting, you know, showing off this bronze medal. She's like, I think I can do better. I think I can, I think I can win gold all on my own. And so at that point she starts training for the 1960 Olympic games in Rome, Italy. As if this story, I'm going to keep saying this. It seems like a trend with her as if this story couldn't get even crazier. She's still in high school competing at the Olympics after not even being able to walk without a leg brace until she's 12 years old. Now, during her senior year of high school, she gets pregnant and has a baby girl named Yolanda in 1958, just a few weeks before starting school at Tennessee State University. <laughs> like what? She's racing in the Olympics, senior year, gets pregnant, and then ends up going back and, and competing at an incredibly high level. This woman is just insane. So she's now earning a degree in education, taking care of a newborn baby, and working an on-campus job two hours a day as part of a work-study scholarship program that helped her pay her tuition. And, as if that wasn't enough, she's still competing in track and field at an incredibly high level. So in 1959, she's at the uh, Pan American Games in Chicago, Illinois. She wins silver in the 100 meter and gold in the 4x100. She also won the AAU 200 meter title and continued to defend that title for four consecutive years afterwards. <laughs> yeah, just casually compete at the Olympics at 16, go have a baby at 18, come back and continue to win medals left and right after giving birth as if nothing happened. And she's not even at the peak of her career yet, which is what we're going to get into right now. So as a sophomore at Tennessee State, she heads off to Abilene Christian University for another round of U.S. Olympic track and field trials, and she sets a world record for the 200-meter dash that would stand for eight years to follow and qualifies for the 1960 Olympics in the 100-meter dash. Finally, the date rolls around, and it's important to note here that the 1960 Olympic Games were the first ever Olympics with national television coverage. So she goes on to compete in the 100-meter the 200 meter and the four by 100 meter events. And she wins gold in all three of them, becoming the first American woman to win three gold medals in a single Olympiad and rightfully so earning the nickname, the fastest woman in history. And because of the national television coverage, Wilma Rudolph, along with Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali, who she would actually date for a little bit, which was shocking to me, Rayford Johnson and Oscar Robertson all became international superstars in their respective sports. So the, the television coverage just blew them all up. Rudolph would compete with her teammates in London and then West Germany, the Netherlands, and other parts of Europe. And then they would all return home uh, and she would return to, to Clarksville where she would be met with this massive homecoming parade and banquet in her honor. And people were just loving it. So in the years that followed, she would compete in the uh, Los Angeles Invitational Indoor Track Meet in New York Club Track Events, the Penn Relays, the Drake Relays, and she was the first woman invited to compete in the Milrose Games. 
She had documentaries made about her, was a guest on the TV show to tell the truth. All of this just elevating her status as this iconic sports superstar. And she would end up retiring at the age of 22. 22. I feel like that's the age that most of the other athletes we've covered on this podcast just get start to get their professional careers started, if not later. And she's, you know, lived this full life. At the time of her retirement, she held the world record for the 100-meter dash at 11.2 seconds, the 200-meter dash at 22.9 seconds, and the 4x100-meter relay. She also won seven AAU national titles and set the women's indoor track record for the 60-yard dash at 6.9 seconds. Wilma Rudolph explained in interviews after her retirement that the reason she retired when she did was because she wanted to leave the sport while still at her best. She said she had this to say about competing in the 1964 Olympics, quote, if I won two gold medals, there would be something lacking. I'll stick with the glory I've already won like Jesse Owens did in 1963. Now, most of our podcast episodes start to come to a close uh, just after we talk about the athlete's retirement. But remember, <laughs> Wilma Rudolph is only 22 years old, and what she goes on to accomplish with the rest of her life is equally as important and impressive. She ended up getting her bachelor's degree in education in 1963, and because she didn't actually make great money from the winnings of her you know, racing career, her athletic career, she started a career in teaching and coaching. So she went to Cobb Elementary School, the same school she went to back in the day as a student, coached uh, coached track at Burt High School in the years to come. She would move all around the U.S. a lot, published an autobiography in 1977, which would later be used for many, many other publications and films on her life and inspiring story, just to give you an idea of how many and how impactful her story truly was by 2014 at least 21 books on her life had been published for kids ranging from preschool all the way to high school students. She worked for nonprofit organizations, government-sponsored projects supporting athletic development in children, established the Wilma Rudolph Foundation, joined DePaul University as the director of women's track, the women's track program, helped with minority affairs at DePaul, started her own TV show in Indianapolis, worked as a publicist for Universal Studios, as a sports commentator for ABC Sports during the 1984 Summer Olympics, and finally became the vice president at Nashville's Baptist Hospital just two years before her passing. Then on July, in July of 1994, Wilma's mother would pass away, and just a few months later, Wilma would be diagnosed with brain and throat cancer, and her condition would unfortunately deteriorate rapidly, and she would pass away on November 12th, 1994, at the age of 54. She died as one of the first role models for black and female athletes, demonstrating how gender barriers could be broken, and how early childhood obstacles and setbacks don't determine or define the rest of your life. She died as one of the greatest, most impactful female athletes in the United States, and is honored today through the Wilma Rudolph Event Center in Clarksville, Tennessee, and with a Wilma Rudolph 23-cent postage stamp issued by the U.S. Post Office in 2004 in recognition of her accomplishments. And as always, I love to close each of these episodes out with a quote or two. 
And I'm gonna use a quote from Wilma herself this time, looking back on her childhood and her early diagnosis of her leg. She said, quote, my doctor told me I would never walk again. My mother told me that I would. I believed my mother. Never underestimate the power of dreams and the influence of the human spirit. We are all the same in this notion. The potential for greatness lives within each of us. Thank you.